Well, we're gonna we're gonna get into today's subject matter, which has been fun. Um, uh, I I want to. I feel like I need to preface the subject matter, but I'm not going to. We're just gonna get right into it. Um, Romans chapter seven, verse fourteen. Romans chapter seven, verse fourteen. And uh, how many of you have this memorized already? We're seven weeks into it. Good. Come on, one of you. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> You didn't have to memorize it. So if you're new with us today, if you're a guest with us today, this is our anchor verse. Um, this has been the, the portion of scripture that has really anchored this entire series. So everything has kind of flowed out of that. This is Paul the Apostle writing. Um, we call these letters in the Bible. Um, maybe you haven't read the Bible before or anything like that. That's absolutely okay. Uh, you will find that we'll have the verses on the screen for you so you can follow along. But this is a letter. That this guy named Paul, he was an apostle. Really, at the end of the day, he was just a leader in a group of people who were, at this time, moving the church forward. He would write this in a letter to a collective group of churches, uh, the churches in Rome. And he would say this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I don't want to do, but I do what I hate. How many of you have said that in Krispy Kreme before? (laughs) (laughs) Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Have you ever felt that way before? For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good... Evil is present with, with me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. He would go on to say this in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He is our ultimate victor, our Savior, and he would go on and he would fill in the gaps over the next few chapters to show us how Jesus is our ultimate rescuer. We've been in this series called Seven, if you're joining us with the, for the first time today. Um, and for the rest of us, I want to continue on in this series. And I want to speak to you from this subject, forks, knives, and book paths. Forks, knives, and book paths as we deal with the issue of lust. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, some of you are excited about it. That's great. Um, everybody just look at me. Everybody say lust. lust. Oh, you sound that's so depressed. Lust. <laughs> it's okay. We can say it. Come on, one more time. Everybody say lust. 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 Everybody turn to your neighbor. Don't. <laughs> there was a collective pause. That's awesome. Um, for the singles in here, I would say to you that a lot of my illustrations sometimes could fall because you don't have children. I do not use these illustrations to not apply them to you. It's just right now, my children are massive degrees of sermon fodder, okay? And so I have to use them. But um, I, I say that just to be able to let you know, like, hey, come into my world so you can see where I'm at. Um, and so I want to use my children as an illustration once again because, well, they just help me out with everything in life. And so um, my kids and many kids, parents, you would know this, and those of you who are just around kids in general would understand this, kids have an uncanny way of using things completely in a way that has nothing to do with their original intent and design. How many of you would agree with me? Like, kids find ways to use things in a way they weren't designed for. A couple, couple weeks ago, my son came running out of my daughter's room, she's two by the way, and he had a mark on his face and he was crying. And we're, buddy, what, like, what's going on? This is my two-year-old. She, he, he begins to then tell us that Eliana had smacked him in the face with a bat. And, um, which I thought was like awesome. I was like, just use that in later degrees of life. Like around 16 or 17, preferably. And so, 
So we had to go to Eliana and we said, baby girl, you don't use bats to hit people. You use bats to hit balls, all right? Bats hit balls, not people, right? And then we'd say the statement, that is not what it's used for. How many of us have said that before? How many of you have said that before? That's not what it's, that's used for. So we have this, this table uh, in our kitchen area. It's got a glass tabletop and uh, just a round table. So when no one's over, it'll just be us sitting at the table. It's where we do most of our dinners. And um, the kids, they'll start, especially Eliana, because she's got no control in her, she'll start taking metal silverware and she'll start banging it on this glass top turning into, like, she's just banging it. But then my two other kids, they join in with metal silverware, and they start playing the drums on it with no rhythm whatsoever. It's just bang, 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 just loud as can be. And we say, hey, hey, guys, these are forks and knives. We use those to put feet, or not feet, food. <laughs> we use forks and knives to stab people's feet. All right. We use forks and knives to put food in our mouth. We don't use them for drumsticks, and then we'd say this, it's not what it's used for. My two-year-old daughter, we, we walked in one time and she had this line of books in our living room. And I was like, oh, that's just awesome. She's smart. She's learning to read and she's two, which is not true at all. But we discovered that what she was doing is she was using the books for a path. It was like, follow the yellow brick road, right? Like she's on this path. Like at this moment, once again, here we are as parents going like, oh, Eliana, these are books. We read them. It's not what they're used for. You see where we're going with this? Maybe you've done this before. How many of you, and no one's going to judge you, but we just need to know where you're at. How many of you have ever tried to put something together using a knife? Mainly, how many of you have ever tried screwing in screws (laughs) using a knife? (laughs) Come on. How many of you know what's happening? And how many of you are like me? You know where the screwdriver is at in the house. But you get to a certain point in the journey where you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm doubling down on this right now. I will put this piece of Ikea furniture together with a knife. You quickly realize after almost stabbing yourself 15 times, you maybe say internally, man, I should have used a screwdriver because a knife, that's not what this is used for. Let me introduce you to lust. Lust is this. All right. The problem is that when we use things contrary to their designed use, we end up devaluing them, and upon the devaluation of them, they tend to continually be used then for things that they were not designed to be used for. Let's create a working definition of lust. This is my definition. Lust is a longing or craving for something that drives us to use things contrary to their original design and intent in order to receive what it is that we are longing for. Let me say that one more time. It is a longing or a craving for something that drives us to use things or people contrary to their original design and intent in order to receive what it is that we are longing for. Lust is all about using things, especially when it comes to sex and sexuality, in a way that is contrary to its original design and intent. Rebecca DeYoung, author of the book Glittering Vices, this is the book, uh, this is a theological deep dive on, on this, series, th- this series that we've been in. And so if you want to do a deep dive on all these things and, and go further than what we've gone in this series, I highly recommend this book. It's absolutely amazing. But this is what she writes. She says this, when we misuse something habitually, we find that we lose our ability to appreciate its true goodness. She goes on to say, the more single-mindedly that we pursue something for the pleasure we can get from it, the less likely we are to find our desire for pleasure satisfied. See, the issue that we're going to be grappling with today and next week, lust and then gluttony, we chose to put that just before Thanksgiving. (laughs) Sink in, sink in, it's good there. Um, 
these two out of the seven uh, are, are the two in, the, in this grouping that really have to do with our physical nature. Okay? As we've discussed these other ones, the reason that we did them first is because it has more to do with our mind um, and, and kind of the way that we, we process things. Uh, it has to do a lot with our emotions. It has to do a lot with our soul and our heart, right? And faith level type of things. These two, as we discuss lust and gluttony, these two very much engage the physical person that we are. Let me put it this way. They engage the tactile reality of our humanity. Does that, does that work for everybody? It engages the tactile reality of our humanity, all right? So what I want to do first, before we move into anything else today, I want to talk about what lust does, all right? And then we're going to, I've got three things that lust does, and then five behaviors to, to, I did two points last week. I had to make more in order to make up ground, okay? So we got eight today that we're going to try to work through. Um, I know, come on, we're going to do this. Church for an hour and a half, here we go, Okay. So we're going to talk about what lust does, and then we're going to talk about the behaviors that we can engage in life in order to help us work through it. Cool. First thing, every shot number one. Here's the first thing that lust does. Lust undermines intimacy. Okay. Now, I want to to pause here for a second. If you are single in here, do not tune out. Okay? Intimacy is something that we all engage in. Intimacy is not just physical in nature. Is everybody tracking with me on that? Okay? So it's not like, well, I can just tune out right now because, well, I don't have intimacy right now because I'm not married. Ain't wrong. Okay? We all have expressions of intimacy in our lives. All right? So lust undermines intimacy, mainly love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says this, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it is not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable. Are you hearing what love is, right? And it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is, that is love. Paul's writing this. See, lust wants intimacy without risk or responsibility. An outcome which is not possible. It resists boundaries. It wants to go wherever it wants to go, whenever it wants to go there. But real, lasting, mutual, loving relationships, not just marriages, all right? Friendships, so on and so forth. They don't work without placing boundaries on lust, and neither does society. This has always been true. Intimacy is actually the product, hear this, this is, this is really important for us to get. It is the product of restraint because much of what we tend to desire has been formed either through inappropriate sources and or lack of positive experience. So can, you, can, I, can I just chime us in on this one? It's not just sexual in nature. We can lust after affirmation. And we will go to whatever source that we need whether it's healthy or not, to receive affirmation. I'm lusting after affirmation. Affirm me, affirm me, affirm me, affirm me. What do you need for me to, for me to get affirmation? Well, how do I get affirmation from you? Come on, somebody. So we can lust after affirmation. We can lust after belonging. We can lust after all of these things. So lust undermines intimacy. Check this out. Intimacy with God is where we get the greatest affirmation. And so when I lust for affirmation in the world around me, I therefore undermine the intimacy that I can have with God. Is that, is that tracking? I'm going to ask you that a few times because I want to make sure that you guys are tracking with me today. Because we've got to work through some complex things. Where sex and sexuality is involved, though, this is the lion's share of the 
of the topic that we're dealing with. Intimacy begins with both mutual submission and mutual restraint, and this is only produced by mutual love. All right, because love is the driving force behind selflessness and sacrifice. Lust says, I want what I want and how I want it because it's about me. Therefore, lust undermines any attempt at intimacy. Rebecca DeYoung goes on to say this about love. She says, to love is to appreciate and value another person for his or her own sake and not just for what that person can do for you. We can have lust in the context of marriage. I can have lust in the context of my marriage if I only see my wife as something who is supposed to give me certain things. The hallmarks of love, the freedom of giving oneself to another are excluded from lust's manipulative view. How does lust then manifest itself? Let's talk about that. Here's where we're going to get really real. Can we do that today, church? All right, good. This is the 12 p.m., so everybody's ready to get real. Here we go. So how does lust manifest itself in our lives? Well, imagining what it would be like to be with someone who is everything your partner isn't. Defining someone's worth based on how attractive you find them. Trying to picture what someone else would look like naked. Wanting your partner to be the sum total of all your favorite traits of all your favorite people with none of their deficiencies. Living vicariously through a fictitious character's romance instead of engaging in your own. Trolling the internet for pornography. Feeling disinterested in your partner's body when compared to other bodies. Being physical with one person while picturing another. Pressuring someone to do something they find a meaning. Placing enormous expectations on on your partner or friends or people while being offended by their expectations of you. See, lust isn't about just admiring beauty, form, or physique. It's about indulging a fantasy that looks to take, possess, or use someone as a means to its own escapist ends. See, it gives you, it gives me, it gives us permission to see another person, check this out, as an object for our consumption or exploitation, a way to get what we want and need to feel. Lust depersonalizes, it dehumanizes others, it is interested in giving the least to get the most. This is why trafficking is such an issue in the world that we're living in right now. Come on. It's not just a money issue. It's so much more than that. That's why pornography is one of the largest industries in our world. One of the largest financial industries in our world. Because it preys on this thing. See, lust has an escalation rate. The escalation rate is what takes place when we meditate on certain things. Why? Because we move in the direction of our thoughts. So it undermines intimacy. Here's intimacy. If you didn't know what intimacy was, there's a great definition for it. Into me see. That's intimacy. See, intimacy is not just physicality. Intimacy is into me. See, our marriage, for us to be intimate in marriage has nothing to do with physical nature. It's allowing her to see into me. And it's allowing, she is allowing me to see into her. The greatest relationships that you have are not built off of the fantasies that we have of everyone else. They're actually built on the learning to work with each other's discrepancies. And in that, we have the greatest intimacy. Her beauty is not defined by her perfection. Her beauty is defined through the lens of how I love her through the things that aren't there and vice versa. And I have a lot more than she does. 
just putting that out there. <laughs> Come on, am I talking to anybody this morning? Don't get quiet on me. So lust undermines intimacy. Let's move on to another one, number two. Everybody shot number two? Lust dilutes purity. Lust dilutes purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 says this, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body, his own body in holiness and honor with no lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. This means one must not transgress against another and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we so also previously told you and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Holiness, if you don't know, is just a big bible word for purity, set apart. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is, if we are honest, a hard concept for us to wrestle with, especially in today's culture. Because purity is not popular. Right? Like, when was the last time you turned on TV and everybody was like, you're talking about purity, right? MTV was like, hey, today, purity. <laughs> right? When was the last time we did a series on purity and everybody showed up from all the, all of the northwest, uh, southeast, all the directions that we have? Like, everybody's like, yes, finally, the church is talking about purity. I shall go. <laughs> right? Said no one ever. Because purity is not a popular concept. Purity is not something that we like talking about. Here's why. Because if we're single in here, we see this as a dull, irrelevant, and prudish topic that's designed as to simply withhold me from the beauty of my humanity. And if we're married in here today, we see this as an irrelevant topic because we are married and therefore it's simply inapplicable. Both of these extremes are completely inaccurate. Both of these would be wrong views concerning the issue of purity. Purity is about the quality of something. Purity speaks to the issue of being unblemished, clear, clean, untainted, all right? It's pure. It's interesting to me that we're cool with purity when it comes to our water and our diamonds. (laughs) Think about that. Have you ever noticed that? Like in so many other places, ah, it doesn't matter, especially when it comes to our humanity. But when it comes to our diamonds and our water, we are all about our purity, aren't we? Why? It's interesting that we care the most about what we put on our body and what we put in our body to be the purest thing possible. Interesting. Now, without going down an illustrative track on that one, this is purity for us. We have to understand that purity is important at the end of the day. That systemically, the reason that we, like, if I were to spit in this water and throw dirt in this water and then say, who shall be tribute to drink this water, I don't think I would have a hand go up in here. Why? Because we care about the purity of our water, don't we? We care about the purity of the diamond that we place on her finger, that she places on her finger. It's a purity, we care, systemically we care about purity. Let me illustrate it this way. We lived in Phoenix for about... Almost seven years of our life. Can I tell you that the worst place to do Christmas is in Phoenix? <laughs> Here's why. Because I remember this distinctly. We, we, we grew up in northwest Washington. Beautiful area. Rainy. Trees everywhere. And I remember coming to our first Christmas in Phoenix. And it was like my soul had been depleted when I realized what Christmas was going to look like. It was going to look like 80 degrees, dusty, and a plastic tree in my living room. And I thought to myself, this cannot be so. 
where's the purity of Christmas gone? Because there was something interesting that took place. I lost, I lost a piece of how good Christmas was when we threw a plastic tree in our living room. Where was the smell of Christmas? You know what I'm talking about? That fir tree smell in there. I didn't have to water it. I didn't have to do any of the things that I actually enjoy about Christmas. I didn't have to worry about it driving out, like drying out. It was just perky all the time. <laughs> Why? Because it was a plastic tree. The purity of Christmas was gone. Because we have certain things that define purity for us. And so the thing that we need to understand about lust is that lust dilutes purity. Check this out. Titus chapter 1 verse 15. This is Paul writing to a guy named Titus. And he says this, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Here's what I want us to understand about lust. Is that lust is not just a physical issue. It is a perspective issue. Lust actually is a lens that we look at things through. Come on, you hear me this morning. It's how we see certain things. It's how we see our relationships. It's how we see people around us. I want to ask you a very challenging question this morning. What things are you looking at through the lens of lust? <laughs> Some of us right now are be like, are we talking about this in church right now? Yes. This is the place that we need to talk about this stuff. We've always said, like, we do not, like no, there is no topic that is off limits for us. We ain't scared of them, all right? And if you need any help, just stare at the tiger, okay? We'll just... <laughs> Come on, everybody shout lust. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Once again, Rebecca DeYoung helps us with this truth. She says, acknowledging the goodness of sex is the first step because we can't define lust as damaging or disordered, please-seeking, unless there is a well-ordered, delightful form in which it fails to measure up to. So we can't define lust as, as, as a, a dilution of purity until we understand how good sex is. Can I just go on the record and say this? Sex is awesome. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Everybody who's been here for three services, they've been waiting for this moment. They're like, every time. <laughs> sex is awesome. We do not have three kids because we like kids. <laughs> byproduct of other things that we like more. <laughs> Can I get a witness in church today? Stare, stare at the tiger. <laughs> and this is the problem because we, we can walk into a church like, like a service like this and, and get squirrely with this topic because let's be honest, historicity tells us that the church has actually not done the best of jobs when it comes to handling this topic. We've said it's bad, it's wrong, it's dirty, ew, gross. Ah! <laughs> right? Can I tell you that there's literally an entire portion of like a thick, a thick portion of scripture in here that is devoted to just talking about intimacy in the confines of God's original intent. And it's spicy. 
I, I remember we did a message. Do you remember this? We, we were pastoring a young, adults, uh, a young adult service, much like this, in Phoenix. And we did a message on relationships. And we tried to read out loud to each other this book, Song of Solomon, in front of people. It got weird quick. <laughs> talks about gazelles and giraffes and all kinds of things. It's, it's crazy. I'm just, it's scripture. It's scripture. <laughs> see, when we know the greatness of something, it helps us to see and recognize when something else is trying to dilute it. In this case, lust. See, much of the sexual dysfunction, intimacy, arousal, and enjoyment issues we experience all trace back to unchecked lust, the dilution of purity, all of which leaves people damaged, depressed, lonely, and angry. But sure, let's keep on telling each other that no one gets hurt. Isn't that the mantra? We're consenting adults, no one gets hurt. Yet I bet you if I were to take an anonymous poll on the hurt that is associated with this topic sitting in this room, there would be a majority of us sitting in this room right now to say that I have been damaged, I have been hurt, I have been wounded by this issue. But let's keep on telling ourselves that it's no big deal. We're all just humans. When we misuse something habitually, we lose our ability to enjoy it fully. So we've got, to, we've, got to get a, we've got to get an appropriate understanding. See, the biblical understanding of sex and sexuality is not something to like harness us and keep us ruled out and keep us in this place where we're just no fun and we only, we only do what we do for procreation and everything like that. No, 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 that's not how God designed it. It's supposed to be the most beautiful thing that there is, but it's hard to see the beauty in it when it's been overtly broken. And so we need to understand that lust dilutes purity. Here's, here's the third one. Here's the third one. Lust cheapens originality. Lust cheapens originality. First of all, the way that we think about people translates into the way that we treat people. See, a fantasy is often a rehearsal for reality. The more often we indulge in it mentally, the more likely we are to give into it physically. See, beyond that, indulging in fantasy makes us dissatisfied and eventually unable to fully engage with reality. The more we think about what we could have or should have, the less interested we are and become in actually having what's in front of us. See, this produces all sorts of problems, body image issues, eating disorders, arousal issues, impotence, screen addiction, not being able to be present with our partners, living in our head instead of living in the moment. See, lust cheapens originality because it causes us to find what we are looking for in and through a source that only replicates the original design. How many of you have ever been to a restaurant before? The rest of you are lying, seriously. Someone's like, I don't know where he's going with this. He left that question open-ended. Okay, how many of you have ever been to a really nice restaurant before that wheels out desserts on a cart? Come on, show hands, show hands. Okay, a lot of us in here. I don't know if you've been like me, where you've, you felt robbed in that restaurant. You're sitting there, you're having your steak, you're having your meal, and then all of a sudden, how many of you guys know what I'm talking about? They, they wheel that cart, like, right past your table, right? And then they look at you. <laughs> They're just kind of like, you know you want this cake and your head tracks with it just with the cake with the cake like I will will leave conversation and I will track with the chocolate cake and I'm like you want cake I want cake we should get some cake or flan whatever you're into (laughs) so so 
the car goes by, the car goes by, and you stop them. And some of you have probably done this before. If not, I've done this. Judge me. But you stop the car, and you're like, oh, that looks so good. And they're like, yeah, doesn't it? It looks, it looks great. And you're like, oh, I want that one. Give me that one right now, right now. Four of them now. And then they say this to you. Okay, we'll have to, we'll wheel this, we have to go back to the kitchen and get it. And you're like, excuse me, what? I want my cake right now. You wheeled the cart past me. And it's because something has been incited in you that you want what you want now. And the problem is, is that the cakes sitting on that cart are fake. You guys remember these moments? Like, I got to go get it out of the kitchen. Why? Because what they wheeled out was really plastic that looked good, but had no substance, had no taste, come on, had no depth to it. It would not actually give you what you are looking for. And the problem is that through lust, we are looking for plastic cake in this world. So we've got to change the way that we look at things. We've got to understand what we're really looking for. Because how many of you would be appalled if they threw the cake on your table and then charged you for it? You'd be like, wait, uh uh-uh, nope. But isn't that what we do? We swipe our credit cards. We look at things through screens. We pursue people and things and it's just plastic cake it's not the real thing it looked beautiful but there was no nutrients there was no substance and it leaves you wanting more because there's nothing of redeeming value in it it cannot fill you it cannot sustain you because it's plastic cake. And this is where lust hits home for us. I maybe should have titled this message looking for plastic cake. <laughs> so what do we do? If lust does all these things, what do we do? Well, I want to give you quickly five behaviors. <laughs> quickly. Five behaviors. I'm not going to dig in depth for these, but you will see how this works through practicum. First one's this. Write this down if you're taking notes. Here's the first thing. Is that we need to adopt parameters on our thought life. Come on, somebody. Can I get an amen in church today? We need to adopt parameters on our thought life. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, watch what it says. Dwell on these things. That means literally like... Dwell on these things. (laughs) Put your head on it and dwell on it. We have to reframe our thing. We got to put parameters on our thought life. We got to put boundaries up on our thought life. We have to bathe our brain in information and images that will move us in the direction of holistic love, not lust. Listen, if our mind is wandering... We've got to get things in front of us that cause our mind to wander in another direction. Yeah. Come on. Right? Like you, need to, like you need to have things that are right there and available to you to adjust the way that you think. If my mind is moving in one direction, I need to figure out ways to get it to shift and move in another direction. Yeah. Snap out of it. 
Get it out of my head. Start thinking about other things. Whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, think on this. What are we thinking on? That's the question. What's up here? What are you thinking? <laughs> Number two. <laughs> This is why why I love this service. (laughs) Number two, we have to acknowledge our weak moments. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. This is God talking to Paul. Therefore, he says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, at the end of the day, I am going to acknowledge that I am weak. But the funny thing is, is that most of us try to acknowledge where we are strong. Right? Willpower. How many of you would agree with me willpower does not work? I'll prove it. Just put Oreos in front of you. <laughs> it doesn't work. Right? You just like, your nose. Whoa. I'll take four. <laughs> right? We got to acknowledge that we are weakness. When and where does my mind drift? What triggers lust for me? Certain people, places, emotional or physical states, experiences, language, images, stories, etc. These things trigger lust in us, right? There's an acronym up on the, up on the screen. H-A-L-T. HALT! Come on, Rochelle. HALT! HALT! This is what we need to think to ourselves. When we are in lusty moments. Come on, we're just in lusty. <laughs> right? We're in lusty moments. Am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Or am I tired? How many of you guys would agree with me that that's usually when we make a bad decision? Have you noticed that? When I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired is usually when I make the worst decisions possible. Right? So you may be like, I'm I'm feeling all kinds of lusty right now. Grab a Snickers. (laughs) Seriously, it's not just hangry, right? It's lusty. I need something to eat. You distract yourself. You feel you because the funny thing is, check this out. These are systemic desires in our lives as humans. And what we have a tendency to do when we haven't given them what is appropriate, we look for inappropriate means to fuel them. So you'd be like, wait a second, I get lusty when I'm hungry? Yeah, people do. When I'm angry? Yeah, people do. When I'm lonely? Most definitely. And when I'm tired, I'm at my weakest point. And I'll let anything in at that point. Come on, am I talking to anybody? So we've got to halt. Right? H-A-L-T. Dude's in here. Get get it tattooed on you. I don't know. (laughs) Halt. Right? Just get like right here. Halt. Right? (laughs) Number three. Rearrange our environments. 2 Samuel 11, this is the third thing we got to do is rearrange our environments. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4, in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Watch this. But David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. And then what would happen is the story would ensue where David sees this chick named Bathsheba bathing on another roof. And all of a sudden he engages in this thing called lust. And then he says, I want her. Bring her to me. She's a married woman. They sleep with each other. She gets pregnant. It's Jerry Springer all over the place. (laughs) Now, a lot of people read this story and they go, man, David, he was just, he was this dirty guy. Right? All he just wanted was things and stuff. 
He's just lusting, right? And we do it with that voice because we want it to seem like monstrous. The problem is, is that God said of David that he was a man after his own heart. So I struggle with this. What if David's major issue was not lust as much as it was an inappropriate environment? See, the problem is, is that external environments have a tendency to attract the lust in us. If we change the environment, we stop the monster. Come on, what am I talking about? We just change our environment. One of the things that we do in our house, Erica didn't even really know this, but I've outed myself today, but she would know it by way of what I do every single time. She will, when she, when she gets tired, if we're sitting now, we're watching TV together or anything like that, she's like, okay, I'm going to go to bed and I'll see you in the morning and, I'll, and I'll, sh- I'll shut my computer or I'll turn off the TV as well and say, I'm going to bed with you, right? Why? Because I don't want to leave myself in a predicament. She said, no, you don't have to go to bed. No, 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 I'm going to go to bed with you because here's the deal. I would rather stare aimlessly at my ceiling than stare destructively at my TV. Go to bed. I would rather, I would rather lie next to my wife while she snores. (laughs) She doesn't snore. She doesn't snore, right? (laughs) I would rather lay next to my wife right? Then be in my living room with her in our bedroom and my kids downstairs destroying my soul. So she's like, I'm going to bed. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. Because nothing good happens after those hours. I'm going to stay up and do a little bit of work. Are you? I'm just going to stay up and I'm going to scroll through social media a bit more. I know it is, but, but well, I mean, we can find all kinds of different things. But this is the issues. We've got to rearrange our environments. Remove or reduce your triggers. Schedule other things during problematic times. Position yourself around the right kinds of people. Put limits on what you watch, look at, listen to. I listen to all kinds of music, guys. I've got to be really honest with you. I can only handle certain portions for certain amounts of time. You know what I'm saying? So when I'm working out and things like that, like at a certain point, like at a certain moment, if you ever want to curb this vice of lust, just throw worship music on. It's amazing what you can't do with Hillsong in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Number four, ask someone to hold us accountable. Come on, somebody. Right? James chapter 5 verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. He said, confess, talk about this thing. Willpower doesn't work. Lust thrives in privacy and isolation. Lustful people feel trapped by their shame, which motivates them to stay in hiding and things escalate. Table groups, teams, connected to the relationship, church, these are the things, these are the things that we have in our life. I was sitting at a conference this week with about 40 other pastors. And one of the speakers got up and he said, I want to ask you guys a question. Because pastors struggle with this. We struggle with this the most. We feel isolated so many times in life. Lack of friends. We're leading. We're doing all these different things. And so this guy gets up and he goes, I just want to ask you a question. Who's your eight? And I was like, what? That's a weird question. He says, who are the eight people in your lives? So then I started thinking and everybody's like, he's like, I want you to jot it down. So I was like, oh man, this is easy. What a stupid question. Eight people? I got like 45,000 people, right? Right? 
started writing names down. And he goes, wait, 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 pause. Who are the eight people that would carry your casket? And I was like, oh, snap. Because I realized I started to write that out. And he goes, not your wife, not your family. And then I started to realize, I wonder, as that list got a little bit harder to write down, who are my eight I want to ask us this question today. Who is in your life right now that if they noticed you going down the wrong path, they would literally tackle you? Guys, girls, doesn't matter. Who is in your life right now where they would be like, yo, I'm about to pounce on you because I don't like where you're going. It's a destructive path. I've got those people in my life. I've got those people that would literally throw swings at me. They would rather wound me physically than to see my life wounded perpetually. Eight. We gotta, we gotta be connected through relation. Hold us accountable. And number five, here's the last one. We have to surrender to a greater authority. We have to surrender to a greater authority. for this message and thinking about this issue of surrender I gotta say for guys honestly this is probably our hardest guys would you agree with me surrender we don't surrender no surrender till the death (laughs) right that's our mentality I've come to realize something about my life The strongest position that I've ever found myself in was never a position of standing in my own power. It was a position of being surrendered before God. And we've got to get this, church. That at the end of the day, what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency, listen, we have a tendency to surrender to who we believe or what we believe is the greatest authority in our life, right? So we surrender to ourselves. We say, my flesh is the greatest authority in my life. My, my thoughts are the greatest authority in my life. My feelings, my emotions, they're the greatest authority in my life. Can I just encourage us today and challenge us today that those things are not the greatest authority in our lives. The world around us is not the greatest authority in our lives. Why? Because we are not the product of some biological mathematics. We are the product of a God who has designed us and built us and formed us and made us. And so therefore, when I say that we surrender to God, Everything changes. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, both of us, all of us, every single one of us, in view of who God is, the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as what? That's called surrender. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but the transformation by be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may now discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect. Good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I only get the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. When I'm right here. I'm on my knees and when I surrender I'm saying God I'm giving you my mind I'm giving you my thoughts I'm giving you my manhood I'm giving you my feelings I'm giving you my fears I'm giving you my insecurities I'm giving you my family I'm giving you my marriage I'm giving you my kids I'm giving you my worship I'm giving you my imperfection I'm giving you all the things that are in me right now all the hurt all the pain all the dysfunction in surrender to you I surrender 